Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to meet some uh, new people this morning. I know this is a time of year where people start to look for a church home if they're new or just ready for a change. And so let me encourage you, if you've been at Melanie Park for a while, to seek out those faces that maybe you're not familiar with. Introduce yourself and uh, let them feel welcome because we really are glad that they're here. I want to take a little bit of time to share about our backpacking trip that took place uh, few weeks ago. Uh, this picture, these are the men that participated in the uh, trip this year. Uh, Michael and Zeke Park kind of came along as uh, leaders to kind of help me out in leading the trip. Uh, the other dads uh, spent the last year uh, working together trying to understand what it means to raise a modern day knight. Uh, we spent time as dads in the fall meeting together and talking about intentional conversations that we would have with our sons. Uh, conversations that uh, kind of are inviting them in along on a, on a journey with us. And we've come back and talk about those conversations and, and discuss what it means to be a man from a biblical perspective. At the end of the fall, we had a, a nighting ceremony where we had campfire and hot dogs and an actual sword. And it was like a rite of passage where we were inviting our sons on this journey of understanding what it means to be a man from a biblical perspective. So that through the spring, we did what we call BAM sessions, becoming a man. And we did different activities to help uh, teach the principles that we see in Scripture about what that looks like. And then this summer, it was the ultimate BAM session, the backpacking trip. And I uh, sort of have a love-hate relationship <laughs> with these backpacking trips. I think this is about the third or fourth group of dads and sons that I have taken during the summer. And I absolutely love seeing dads and sons have this experience together. Many, for the very first time, neither dad or son has done something like this. That is so fun. I love the adventure and what I believe are lifetime memories that you create on a trip like this. What I don't like is all the planning and preparation that it takes to actually get there. If you forget something in the wilderness, you can't just go to Walmart and get it, right? I mean, it really is something that you have to think about and plan for. In fact, it's very serious. There are even life-threatening consequences if you're not prepared for what you might encounter in the wilderness. So I can get pretty anxious as I'm preparing and trying to think through all the details of a trip like this. And difficult weather makes it even more challenging. And you'll remember, before we left, I told you that there was a lot of rain in the forecast for us. And sure enough, that's exactly what we got. A lot of rain. In fact, I would tell you that everything I was worried might happen, did happen. We experienced it all. We had lots of rain. We had hail. And we had what is my worst nightmare in the wilderness, lightning. Did you know that more people die in the wilderness because of lightning strikes than any other cause of death? There's not even a close second. One night after being in the middle of a very violent thunderstorm, we woke up to see a stand of trees not six feet from our tent struck by lightning. I mean, these were green, vibrant trees, and you can't really tell, perhaps, now, because it's been a few weeks ago, 
but they, were, they just melted. It wasn't like you looked at them and say, oh, that tree's been burned. No, that tree's been melted. It was green, and it's just like a big jelly right now. Six feet from our tent. And so here is my big takeaway from our trip this year. God did not remove any of the obstacles that I was worried about, and in fact, even prayed that he would remove. Instead, he revealed his presence in the midst of them. A lightning strike, six feet from our tent. I can't tell you how many times we would get up in the morning, it would look like rain could happen any second now. We'd walk up to the lake, we'd fish, we'd have a grand time together. We'd be walking back to our campsite with inside of our tents, and here comes the rain. No big deal. We'd get in our tents, we'd take a breather, dinner would come, rain would stop. We'd get out, go have dinner, start a campfire, spend the evening together, get in our tents, rain would start again. Day after day. He didn't remove any of the things that I was worried about. Instead, he revealed his presence in the midst of them. God was there even in the storm. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the disciples and their experience in the midst of a storm. And and like me, they were very fearful of all the life-threatening scenarios that could have happened. And like me, those were legitimate fears. (laughs) These are experienced fishermen. They know when to be afraid. And they had every right to be afraid. But see, Jesus was present with them in the boat. And so he's going to ask them the question, why are you afraid? You see, if God is present in the midst of our worries, what do we have to fear? If God is present in the midst of the worries, what do we have to fear? That's a really good question, isn't it? And that's what we'll look at together this morning when we go to God's Word. Before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we want to come before you humbly. Uh, Hearing your Word and considering your truth is a significant blessing. And so just uh, give us humble hearts. Give us listening ears. Uh, Protect us from all the distractions and things that might want to pull our attention away from what you would want us to hear. Father, this issue of fear and anxiety is so prevalent in our world today. There's a lot going on that uh, causes those uh, emotions. But we want to live not ruled by fear and anxiety, but peace under the promises of God. And so help us see those more clearly this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. As you're turning there, let me give you a little of the context of what we will be looking at together this morning. Jesus is once again speaking to a large crowd who has gathered to hear him teach. In this particular situation, there is such a large crowd that Jesus has had to get into a boat so that he can push away from the shore just a little bit and speak to all the people that have gathered along the shore. And was often the case, he was teaching the crowd with parables, right? We've looked at that. These are stories with intent. And in this situation, he's going to talk a lot about seeds. Seeds are a part of the parables that he's teaching. In his first parable, he talks about seeds that represent truth. 
seeds that represent the Word of God. And he talks about how those seeds can be sown, and some of them fall by the roadside, and some of them fall among the rocks. Some of that seed falls in the weeds, and then some of it falls in fertile ground. What he's doing is he's trying to show that these different soils represent the ways in which that Word of God, that truth, is received. The seed by the roadside represents those who hear the truth with a half-hearted indifference. They're really not all that interested because it's technically not all that important. Life is pretty good, so they move on. Others hear the truth and at least appreciate the message, right? What's not to love about freedom and forgiveness and grace? They like what they hear as long as they don't have to change how they live. So they're interested until it gets hard. But then they go back to their old ways, so their faith never takes root. But you see, when God's Word takes root in your heart, that truth transforms your life. And you bear fruit. You bear the fruit of repentance and of obedience. You live in the realities of of grace and forgiveness I want us to see how Jesus continues to take these parables to to communicate these truths. So read with me beginning in verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 21 of Mark. And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? For nothing hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it should come to light. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more shall be given to you besides. For whoever has to him shall more be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. See, I believe that Jesus is using these parables to make the point that he has come to put truth on display. He is the light of the world. In that parable, he's the lamp that's been put on the lampstand. He has come to reveal the truth of God. And not just in what he says, but in how he lives. That's why he said that I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. And no one comes to the Father. No one understands who God is apart from me. That's why Jesus is so insistent there in verse 23. If any man has ears, let him hear. In other words, don't miss what I'm saying. See, only Jesus has the answers to what our hearts long for most. If you are searching for truth, Truth, real truth. You will only find that in Him. But if your heart remains hard, indifferent, uninterested, His truth will never take root. See, it's important for us to understand that Jesus does not force you to believe. He doesn't. But He does insist that you make a choice. He wants you to be honest with yourself and to realize that you can't serve two masters. 
you will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. In order to follow Christ, you must abandon all other alternatives. Hear me on this. It is impossible to believe and then live as you please. It just doesn't happen. Jesus came to put truth on display. And that truth only takes root in your heart when you trust in him. Jesus is going to talk about how that simple truth has great consequence. Look at how he continues in verse 26. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts up and grows. How he himself does not know. The soil produces crops itself, the, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts it to the sickle because the harvest has come. He, and, and then he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than any of the other seeds that are upon the soil, Yet when it is sown and grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that birds of the air can nest under its shade. So, so Jesus gives two parables here. The first one is only recorded in Mark's gospel. The other one, the mustard seed, is more familiar to us. It's in Matthew and Luke as well. But both of them have the same message. In these two parables, Jesus says that the seeds represent the kingdom of God. Remember, I told you there's a lot of talk about seeds in the parables that, that Jesus is teaching here. Jesus came to reveal God's truth, that's the first parable, in order to establish God's kingdom. That's the second set of parables. I want you to see how these two are connected. They're not just random seed parables. He's trying to make a point. The kingdom of God, which may seem insignificant from the world's point of view. Because remember, Jesus is living during the time of the Roman Empire. The greatest empire the world has ever known. It is the most extensive political and social structure in Western civilization. The most dominant military power at that time. And so, how would Jesus and a few disciples ever compete with a kingdom like that? Well, the first parable is intended to teach us that there's a lot going on from a divine point of view that we just can't see with human eyes. It's like a seed that begins to germinate in the soil. Can you actually see that seed becoming a plant? Of course not. It's under the soil. We only know that there's a plant there when it sprouts up above the ground. And then you see that little sprout. And you say, oh, look, there's a plant growing there. But you never see that growth taking place. For example, he goes on and says, well, at what point does that plant be, produce a head and that head produce grain? It's not like you can sit there and watch and go, oh, look, there it is. I saw a piece of grain pushed out. Right there it happened. You don't see that, right? 
but yet we know that it is happening. It's just not perceptible by our eyes. And so it is with the kingdom of God. It was inconceivable that Jesus and a few disciples might change the course of human history. (laughs) But they did. The kingdom of God may not have been visible, but the growth continues to this day because the harvest of faith gets bigger and bigger with time. Jesus says it's kind of like a mustard seed. Really, the smallest seed of all, but that tiny little seed can grow into a plant that's sometimes 12 to 14 feet high. So not only does it produce a harvest, but it also provides a shelter, a refuge. So it is with the kingdom of God. The Spirit of God dwells among the people of God. And His presence in our world is made evident in our lives. It's made evident through our love. We become the shelter and the refuge to those in need. See, the kingdom of God is not perceived through bricks and mortar. It's made visible through people, through the church. That may seem insignificant compared to all the kingdoms of the world, (laughs) but God does some of his best work through our faithfulness in small things. That's what he's trying to prove. See, God's truth has been revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's kingdom has been established through his sacrifice on the cross. And when that truth takes root in your heart, it transforms your life. The kingdom of God is revealed through the people of God. Because we are indwelled by the very presence of God. Now you can imagine as you're hearing Jesus say these words, how significant this would be. I mean, this is big stuff, right? You've got to think through and consider what he just said. That's powerful truth. And so Jesus gives them that opportunity and he tells his disciples, push away from the shore and let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Let's look at what happens next. Look at verse 35. So on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. And, those who were, and, and there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was filling up with water. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. The first thing I noticed when I looked at this passage is that Jesus is in a boat among many boats. If you'll look again at verse uh, 36, it says, and he was in the boat and other boats were with him. I don't know about you, but in my mind, I've always heard this story and pictured Jesus and the disciples in a boat on the Sea of Galilee by themselves, right? 
But that's not the scene here. Jesus is in a boat with probably some of his disciples, along with another boat with probably other disciples. And then I expect there were other people on the Sea of Galilee doing what they would normally do in the fishing trade and that sort of thing. When we were in Israel, we were able to see um, uh, an actual uh, first century fishing boat that had been discovered in recent years. They called it the Jesus boat. It really wasn't the Jesus boat. Nobody knows whose boat that was. But what was fascinating about it, it was an actual artifact of a first century fishing boat. So it was fascinating. But one of the things that I realized in looking at this boat is that it wasn't very big. It's about seven and a half feet wide, maybe 25, 27 feet long. So the fact of the matter is you couldn't put just a whole lot of people in that boat. And if the wind and the waves started to get nasty, you'd be in trouble in a hurry. So apparently Jesus was in a boat like that with his disciples along with other boats around him. And while they were on the Sea of Galilee, a storm quickly develops. This was very common and known in that part of the world on that particular body of water. And I'll, although I've never been on a, in a storm on the Sea of Galilee, I have been in plenty of storms in the wilderness, and I think it's very similar. Because you can be in the wilderness, and it looked kind of cloudy, a little bit rainy, and the next thing you know, it's coming down in sheets, right? And then the hail. And then the next thing you know, that thunderstorm is right on top of you, and you can't get out from underneath it. Well, I think that's a lot of what the disciples are experiencing on the Sea of Galilee. This thing has come out of nowhere. The winds have kicked up. The waves are coming in. And they're plowing into this boat. And that boat is starting to sink. Now, remember, these are experienced fishermen. So they know a legitimate danger. And in my opinion, they have every right to be afraid. Because this is a legitimate danger. Apparently, in his humanity, Jesus is asleep. Diligent ministry can be very tiring. How many of you were at Camp Eastridge this week and can say amen to that one, right? In fact, there are probably some who are not here because they're sleeping. That's what Jesus was doing in the boat. But I want you to notice what the disciples say to him when they go to arouse him. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This is more of a rebuke than a request. It sounds more like a criticism than a call for help. They are speaking to Jesus out of fear, not faith. They're relating to him through their emotions. And they're scared that they're going to die. But I want you to notice, instead of rebuking his disciples, Jesus calms the storm. And the text says that he actually rebukes the wind. And the seas become still. And then he asks two questions. Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? At this point, verse 41 basically says that the disciples were more terrified with what Jesus just did to the storm than the storm itself. (laughs) It says they were very, very afraid. And they asked themselves, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey? If you remember last week, I said that the storms in in life are not what wreck our faith. They what reveal our faith. 
Well, the faith of the disciples has just been revealed. (laughs) Because if they truly knew who was in their presence, why in the world would they worry? That's why they ask, who is this (laughs) that even the winds and the waves obey? You see, they understand that Jesus just demonstrated power over creation. And there is only one person who has power over creation, and that's the creator himself. So that could only mean one thing. Jesus is God incarnate. That storm had just been calmed by the creator, and he is in their presence. I believe the two questions Jesus asked are intended to go together. Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? The greater our fear, the smaller our faith. The greater our faith, the smaller our fear. It's kind of like we talked about with anxiety, right? Big God, small worries. Big worries, small God. Now, I realize that some of you hear that and you say, well, that sounds too simple. It can't be that easy. And I would say, I agree. But let me remind you, simple does not mean easy. When you're in the wilderness, all you need to start a fire is two sticks that you rub together. Really simple. (laughs) Not easy at all, right? Even though we think that it may be simple doesn't mean that it's easy. See, the question Jesus asked really hits home to me because I can be a man consumed by fear. I've often related to God out of this emotion of fear, right? Have you ever said things like this? God, where are you? God, why did you let this happen? God, this just doesn't seem fair. I don't understand. So I feel the sting of the question that Jesus is asking his disciples. Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? Even as I ask or work through this passage, I had to ask myself, does God's presence in my life make a difference? Does knowing who Jesus is calm my fears? Is that enough? You see, this goes back to what Miss Courtney said, right? Experiencing God's faithfulness removes our anxiety. You see, we don't find peace based on what we know. We find peace based on who we know. And the experience of what it means to walk with Him and to know that He is present within us. So I think it's good to consider the fact that Jesus' presence should minimize our fear. Knowing He was with us should make a difference. In fact, let me ask you this question. Is Jesus enough? Does his presence in your life make a difference? The answer we know should be a resounding yes, right? Absolutely. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough to give you strength in the midst of a difficult marriage. Jesus is enough to sustain your love for a rebellious child. Jesus is enough to help you endure the loss of someone you love. We know. 
We know the answer. Yes, Jesus is enough. But that won't be our experience if we relate to him out of fear and not faith. I believe it's important to be honest about our fears, about our worries, about our anxieties, to actually name them, to, 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 to identify them for what they are. Maybe we have a fear of disappointing people. We have a fear of failure. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we have a fear that we're not going to be enough. But here's the good news. You don't have to be. Because Jesus is. You don't have to be enough. Because Jesus is enough. We need to let that truth sink deep into our hearts and take root. See, we live in a sin-cursed world. And the reality is sometimes our Worst nightmares are realized even when we pray for them to be removed. But if God is present in the midst of them, He is enough. His presence should make all the difference in the world. In fact, it reminds me of something that A.W. Tozer said. He said, our scared world needs a fearless church. Think about that, because it's a world that we live in. Our scared world needs a fearless church. And I pray that we increasingly become that church, a people who are not ruled by fear, but that we find out that we can be a fearless church because we serve a faithful God. And that's what we believe in. His faithfulness is what removes our fear. It's the conviction that Jesus is enough. And that truth takes root in your heart. That's when it makes a difference in your life. Let's pray together. Father, I'm uh, grateful, even as I read this familiar passage, that whenever the disciples really rebuked you, you didn't turn around and rebuke them. Instead, you rebuked the wind. You calmed the storm, and you helped them see who you are in the midst of it. You're the creator, the king. And when we are in your presence, we're in a good place, no matter how hard it might be. Because you're with us. You're for us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You are enough. As we consider the situations that we find ourselves in, many times those that create great fear in our lives, may we turn to you and consider the questions that you asked your disciples. Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? And may we see that as we walk with you and put our trust in you and experience your faithfulness in our life, then it gives us great peace and removes tremendous fear because of what you faithfully provide. May we trust in you and may it take root in our hearts so that we can communicate like Miss Courtney did that day when she said, you know, I've learned over time that God's faithfulness removes my anxiety. God's faithfulness removes our fear. God's faithfulness is what gives us, allows us to be a fearless church 
in a very fearful world because Jesus is enough. May we preach and teach and live that message every day. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is enough. And God's people said, Amen. Have a great day.